Well, brothers and sisters, uh, we are uh, moving on from our study of biblical theology. So I wanted to get from y'all just some feedback and ask you quickly, I don't want to take all the time, but maybe some things that you learned from biblical theology, things that you wanted to, um, things that uh, were provoked in your study of biblical theology, anything that it really uh, helped you with, uh, hopefully I didn't confuse you to death, uh, any things that maybe it, it um, maybe you were provoked to want to study deeper or anything like that, anybody want to lead us off? Did you guys learn anything from biblical theology? <laughs> You're saying yes. So. Help me to just really realize the, the full like uh, cohesiveness throughout all of scripture and to read it in such a way. I think I, I definitely want to study more like that. I you know, just to protect not going too far into uh, typology and, and uh, you know uh, allegory, allegory or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Amen. Anybody else? Anyone? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, so grammatical historical, right? That's a that's a hermeneutics term that just means that when you interpret the Bible, in, in order to interpret the Bible, you have to apply both uh, grammatical analysis of the Bible and historical. Um, so grammatical, obviously, having to do with Greek grammar, Hebrew grammar, uh, things like that, um, and and grammatical also means you're 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 analyzing the genre of the Bible. So you're asking yourself, like, if you're in the book of Romans, what genre are you in? Um, if you're in the book of Romans, are you in poetry? Are you in apocalyptic literature? Or are you in didactic literature, right? Well, obviously, you're in did, what's co- called didactic literature. So that's that's kind of part of what the grammatical historical uh, interpretation does. Uh, and then also by historical, what they mean by historical there, what is meant by historical in the grammatical historical hermeneutic is that you take into account uh, three three things, and this is, makes it real easy, author, audience, argument, A-A-A, right? So alliteration is good, right? Author, audience, argument. Is that how I said it? But you know what I mean, like who's the author, what's his background, where's he writing from, when is he writing, why is he writing exactly right? And then audience, who's he writing to? What's their situation? What's going on? And for example, what's going on with the saints in Rome when Paul's writing, right? And then argument, what is the overall argument of the letter or the book or what have you? So that is really what's meant behind the grammatical historical method of interpretation. So it's very, it's very important. Uh, it's very important. Yeah. So we, what we say is we need both. We have to do our grammatical historical work. But then on top of that, we also have to do our redemptive historical work, which means we analyze anything out of the Bible uh, from a redemptive historical perspective, which means here that we're, we're wondering, like, how does this theme, this idea, this doctrine, this topic, how does it develop over redemptive history, right? How do the authors of Scripture view these things? How do they develop these things? And how do they progress as we go along this God's great Meta, meta-narrative of scripture. 
you know, things like that. So, uh, of course, you can go back to the Sunday school classes where I deal with all of that just to refresh yourself and all of that. But, um, yes, ma'am? Yes? No, neither will I, yeah. <laughs> And I think that's why I'm moving on from biblical theology because I think, I don't think I can add anything to the TEC conference. <laughs> so I think we kinda, you know, we took protology, you know, to, to, um, to some pretty good lengths. So I, I think we've covered it. Um, now we have to, in a sense, sort of deprogram ourselves for a second or, or we just need to kind of, you know, clear the slate as it were because we're starting now on Practical theology, which is a totally different branch of theology. Let me pray for us before we dive into just talking more about that. I forgot to pray, so let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, Lord, we come before you now, uh, thanking you and praising you and thank you for that glorious hymn that we sang, that, that, that the, the redemption, the perfect redemption that we have in Christ. And I love that line, uh, that says that the moment, the, you know, the vilest offender um, a pardon, or uh, that moment receives a pardon from Jesus the moment he believes, or something like that. But uh, just the idea that it doesn't matter how vile uh, we have been, the grace of God is is greater, and uh, just the the freedom and the liberty of the grace of God, the the liberating power of the blood of Christ. May you bring many sons to glory uh, through this glorious gospel. Uh, of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through our church, through our efforts, through our lives, through our example, which is really what we're going to be talking about here is our example, our character, our virtue, our conduct, our godliness uh, in Christ. And so we ask for your help now. Strengthen us, I pray. Lead us and guide us in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So um, really uh, what I want to do as we think about practical theology, of course, we need to uh, define it. We've got to define what is practical theology. And then we're going to look at things like the need and then the nature of practical theology. And then the last one is the objective of practical theology. Don't know how long it's going to take us to actually do this, uh, but that's kind of what my outline uh, includes is these kinds of things. Uh, what is practical theology? That's a good way. I don't think I've ever heard that, Robert. I think that's a that's a really good way to summarize it. Applicational theology. Any anybody else know what um, what theologians call practical theology? Je- Jonathan. Orthopraxy. Well, that is that that's certainly right in the sense of that's what we're dealing with, right? We're not just talking about orthodoxy. Right, but orthopraxy. Matter of fact, in the book Convert, have you, anybody heard of that book, Convert from Adam and Christ? My, <laughs> my editor, my editor said, "What is orthopraxy?" He's like, "The only place I found it was like some medical term or something." I was like, "No, no, 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 no. It's a theological, to historical term theologians have used to refer to our conduct, our practice." Uh, in Christ. So, uh, no, but, but another way that theologians have talked about practical theology is to refer to it as, uh, pastoral. 
pastoral theology. It's just, I'm just telling you, that's just another way you're going to find it if you search for it, is they might refer to pastoral theology or practical theology. I'm just going with practical because of what um, um, Brother Robert detected in the term practical, that it has to do with application, right? Um, I've told you uh, before that I was reading a book on jihad, the theology of jihad, um, by an author, one of the greatest, um, okay, brace yourselves, but one of the greatest theologians in Islam on jihad. Uh, his name is Zaid Qutb. Zaid Qutb was a teacher, a professor of Islamic history and law at the University of Al-Azhar in, in Egypt and uh, in Cairo. And uh, back in the 40s and 50s, he came to America and he was disgusted with American life. And what he was disgusted with more than anything was the lack of public and practical application of religion. He saw America as essentially godless. He didn't see anything of God in our society. And so, you know, um, the no public praying, um, uh, modesty was a big issue for him. And I mean, think about back in the 40s and 50s, he's having a problem with modesty. And what would he say today, right? Um, you know, these kinds of things. He basically, he, he goes for them, for, for, especially for Muslims, and they see it, Americans and Christians are almost a synonymous term. If you're American, it's like you're a Christian, you know what I mean? Which is a really terrible hurdle we need to climb, right, as we witness to Muslims and stuff, but it's, it's not, it doesn't help the conversation, but, uh, but Zaid Kutub wrote uh, his book Milestones, or Signs Along the Path. Little tiny book you can find on Amazon, probably six bucks. Um, and in reading that book, I was so struck by how ferocious Zaid Kutub was in talking about that what was revealed was revealed ultimately for one simple purpose, and that was for application, implementation. He's saying, you know, God doesn't reveal anything unless we're supposed to implement it, right? And in a sense, that's what we're doing here, is saying, is saying that, you know, what good is our theology? What good is our orthodoxy if it doesn't lead to our orthopraxy? Right? What good is our, our knowledge of abstract theology if it doesn't lead us to practical theology, to the application of all these great, massive theological concepts if it doesn't touch our lives uh, daily? You see what I'm saying? And so, absolutely, uh, practical theology is taking the abstract and bringing it into the concrete of our daily lives. That's what it is. Matter of fact, um, Wikipedia <laughs> had a pretty good definition of of uh, practical theology. Don't ask me why I went to Wikipedia for a definition of practical theology, but somehow in the midst of my studies, it did. And listen to what it says. Practical theology is an academic discipline that examines and reflects on religious practices in order to understand the theology that is enacted in those practices and in order to consider how the- theological theory and theological practices can be more fully aligned, changed, and improved. Um, that's a pretty good definition of practical theology. What it's basically saying is this, that it is the attempt to bring together theoretical theology and practical theology into greater alignment right so 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 it is it is the idea of 
taking the realities that Scripture talk about and trying to live those realities out. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that uh, in this in this uh, course, in this class, in this Sunday school lesson, um, and for the weeks to come? Well, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to take practical theology, and we're going to, in a sense, we need a guide. And so our guide is going to be the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. If you know anything about the book of Ephesians, just turn there really quickly. Um, I... I I love the book of Ephesians. Um, I've taught some of the book of Ephesians. Uh, I've read some of the best commentaries on the book of Ephesians. Probably the best commentary, if you want a good commentary, book of Ephesians, without question, Peter O'Brien. His commentary on the book of Ephesians from Pillar is one of the best. Harold Honer, who wrote, a, I think, an 800-page commentary on the book of Ephesians. <laughs> uh, it's a magnificent work. Um, have some problems with it, but overall is a magnificent uh, commentary on the book of Ephesians. But if you just look at the simple structure of Ephesians, what you find is that chapters one, right? Chapters one through three is what? It is theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all theology, right? But we're we're trying to make a distinction here. So theology, that's right. Uh, and what we could even say is, what we can call this is theoretical, theoretical theology, as Wikipedia's definition says. And then chapters four through six is what we could uh, refer to as the practical uh, section of theology. Because, um, And so <clears throat> the way that people have often broken this up, if we want to add um, a different category here, right, the theoretical or practical, let's just move this here real quick, is, and this is the way, biblically, this is the pattern that you find throughout many of the epistles, is that you have, you go from chapters 1 to 3, and theoretical theology, and what is known as the, the indicative, or the indicatives of scripture. What is that talking about? What are the indicatives of scripture? Anyone? Anyone? Nope. What indication of what? Truth. Who we are, right? And the operative word there is are. <laughs> because indicative refers to what is real, what is actual, right? This is a the indicative is actually a grammatical mood, right? It is it is what is the um well, what is what is being conveyed by the indicatives? What is real? You see, what is real, or uh, very easily, what is right? What is uh, Ephesians one through three is telling us what is. Um, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world, right in Christ. He predestined us according to adoption. You see what I'm saying? So, so this is telling us what is. Now, what is the practical part? The practical part is the imperative. That's right. And what is the imperative telling us? That's right. What should be? What should be? 
in light of what is, what ought to be. And so what we are going to focus on in our time, because we've spent a lot of time in biblical theology talking about what is, what is, what is, what is. Um, we need to balance that out with what ought uh, to be. Let me let me just talk about uh, something that is really heavy on my heart as of late. Um, I think in our you guys tell me what you think, but I think as I look across the evangelical and even the reform landscape, I think that uh, holiness is a rare commodity today. Um, I, I, I think honestly. Honestly, I, I honestly think it's like a vanishing virtue. I think very little is being written and said and preached on on holiness. Practical theology has everything to do with holy living, godliness. Um, you know who was really good at this <laughs> prior to our generation? Guess who was really good at this? J.C. Ryle. What about before Ryle? Who said that over here? The Puritans. So, exhibit A. <laughs> right? Uh if you don't if you don't have a, a practice, a regular practice of reading Puritan literature, let me commend Puritan literature to you um cautiously. Uh the reason I say cautiously is because bearing in mind a few things about the Puritans. The Puritans have some um some points of theology that we just disagree with. Uh they are heavily Heavily Sabbatarian. I would say the vast majority of them were heavily Sabbatarian. Okay, they saw Sunday as synonymous with Sabbath observance. Um, and they speak about, you know, things that we wouldn't really go with in terms of an application of the Sabbath, which, you know, they, they condemn play on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> they would never allow you to watch a Super Bowl on Sunday. Uh, they, they would never allow you to go to a park on Sunday and play and, you know, uh, churches that have a playground in the back. They would never allow for children to be playing out in the back and swinging on swings and things like that. Um, well, we disagree uh, because I'm not Sabbatarian. Our church is not Sabbatarian. I don't believe Sunday is the Sabbath. I believe if it is the Lord's day, which now because of the whole day of the Lord interpretation, I don't know, I'm debating. But if it is the Lord's day, um, then and then it's talking about a new thing. It's a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ it has nothing to do with legislating your behavior on Sunday. Uh, many of you uh, on Sunday have to work. People call you into work uh, after church. Some of you fly off to work. Um, have you broken the Sabbath? Are you now guilty of breaking God's moral law? It's not what the New Testament says. Uh, matter of fact, everything in the New Testament seems to suggest the opposite. Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17 make it very clear. Let no one judge you according to a Sabbath day. But something has changed. What has changed? Well, as the resurrection of Christ sort of altered the ages, I think what happened is that the church, the people of God, went from uh, from Saturday worship to Sunday wor- worship from synagogue to church from Sabbath to Lord's Day. So anyway, so just some qualifications, but don't let that keep you. Don't let that keep you from reading the Puritans. They have such power-packed... Um, but I mean, this is a stick of dynamite right here I have in my hand. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I mean, compare. Look, I read a lot of Christian literature. I, I consume 
uh, volumes of Christian theology. I, I read contemporary stuff. I read old stuff. I read. I, I love to get my hands on the new things that certain authors are pumping out. You know what I mean? G.K. Beale publishes something. I want it. You know, Sinclair Ferguson puts something out. I'm going to look at it. You know what I mean? Uh, that type of thing. But I tell you what, uh, is, who was it that said, if it's old, it's gold, right? Sometimes that's not true, but when it comes to the Puritans, it really is true. Listen to what, and this is a little book called The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. And actually the total, uh, the, the full um, uh, title is The Godly Man's Picture Drawn with a Scripture Pencil. Beautiful. And so anyway, um, see, they're just like that. <laughs> You know, they just, they have such a, such a, uh, 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 such a God-centered and Bible-saturated emphasis in their life. Listen, listen to what Watson says here, just to show you a little bit of the convicting and the potent power of the Puritans. Listen to what he says. Many Christians are no better than baptized heathens. So you gotta kinda prepare yourself. Okay? <laughs> that these guys are gonna step on your toes. You know what I mean? But search the germ of truth in everything they're saying, okay? And compare it like a good Berean to Scripture to see if these things are so, right? He says, many Christians are no better than baptized heathens. By a shame, what a shame it is to be without knowledge. And this is what he's pontificating about. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty four. Some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame, Paul says. Men think it a shame to be ignorant of their trade, but no shame to be ignorant of God. There is no going to heaven blindfold. It is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them. Isaiah twenty-seven eleven. Surely, ignorance in these days is affected. It is one thing not to know, another thing not to be willing to know. Men love darkness rather than light. It is the owl that loves the dark. Sinners are like the Atlantes, a people in Ethiopia who curse the sun. Wicked men shut their eyes willfully, Matthew 11, uh, 13, 15, and God shuts them judicially, Isaiah 6, 10. And the whole book is written like that. Just one, um, I think, masterful stroke of, 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 of piety. And piety is very important. John Calvin said, piety is a requisite for the knowledge of God. That's how he begins his institutes of the, of the Christian religion. Piety is a requisite for the knowledge of God. In other words, um, if you are to genuinely know God, you must genuinely obey God. Uh, right? Um, the, 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 your heart and your life has to conform. Uh, any scriptures come to mind as I'm talking about this? Because I've got a bunch of them coming to mind, and I'm just debating whether or not I should rattle them off or not. You know, but there's just a lot of scriptures. You know, um, uh, what does James say? James, uh, what is it? James chapter chapter one, right? What is it? Verse uh, 23. Somebody look it up, right? Uh, don't be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer, right? For if you're just a hearer of the word, then you're like a man who forgets himself in the mirror. You forgot what you look like, right? You're not applying the things that you're reading. You haven't learned uh, what the wisdom of God is for, right? Um, some real potent uh, 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 scriptures that cut right to the heart of it uh, coming from the mouth of Jesus. If you love me, obey my 
commands. Right? And so there's no, there's no point in expressing your love and zeal for God if you don't want to obey God. You see? Um, so yeah, practical theology has everything to do with our conformity uh, to the revealed will of God and uh, um, holiness. Let's read some verses on holiness because this is as simple as it gets, right? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to get to Ephesians, but not today. <laughs> um, what is the context of this verse? We'll go back to verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial, the prince of the demons, is word for Satan. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Wow, guys. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? This is what's known as a, I think is a, I think it's a third class conditional statement. Expecting a negative answer. What, uh, what, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And if you say, well, we do have some things in common, right? Well, follow the logic. What, what does Christ and Satan have in common? And if you can't bring yourself to say nothing, <laughs> right, then you miss the boat here, right? He says, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. See, this is what's at work here. We Remember, the indicative leading to the imperative, right? So here he gives us the indicia, the reality, what we are. We are the temple of the living God. And because we are the temple of the living God, he tells us, be separate. Look at verse 17. Come out from their midst and be separate. You see that? Wow, what a call to, to holiness. And I'll get to your question in a second, brother. Um, now jump down. Now th- this is, this is kind of the, this is a call for the church to separate from the world of the ungodly. In verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, it belongs to this context, by the way. Bad chapter break. Really bad chapter break. Should have began, it should have begun in, uh, uh, verse 2. But anyway, does some of your, uh, Bibles point that out? Like in the, um, it, no, just like mine, mine lets you know where the paragraph begins. And in mine, the paragraph is showing, uh, that it should begin in verse 2. But anyway, yours is too, Wally. Okay. So, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, Again, the indicia. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. There is the imperative. Perfecting, look at this now. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What I'm saying and what I started off by talking about holiness as a vanishing virtue is that honestly, folks, as I read the literature today coming out, that spirit is vanishing. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know what theologians today are afraid to talk about fearing God, right? Uh, because we are just in a cesspool of psychobabble, pop psychology 
you know, Christianity, right? You know, you got to be careful how you talk about fearing God, right? We don't want to convey the idea that God is some sort of cosmic monster out there to get you. He's, he's more than that. He's not a cosmic monster. Far from that. He is what the book of Hebrews says. He is a consuming fire. And therefore, Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you have not gotten that by now, uh, then you fail to understand what the fear of the Lord is all about. Um, of course, for the believer, our fear is, in a sense, a fear of, a, a reverential fear and awe, right? Uh, in awe of his holiness, whereas for the unbeliever, it is a terror. It is a desire to hide from God. It is a, tire, a desire to run away from God versus for us, our desire is to be pleasing to God, to love God. We fear offending him because he is so good and holy and righteous. You know, it's a different fear altogether. Now, Cameron, do you remember what your question was? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you already, you already talked about it. I was, gonna, I was just going to ask you, why do people uh, uh, not for the Lord? I mean, I, I was listening to James White. He said uh, more and more every day people are falling off in the faith uh, because of they think that God's a joke. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. James is good in pointing that out, too, because it's true. I mean, you know, let me just honestly, folks, let me just say this. Studying this, I mean, boy, I tell you what, talk about laying your heart bare before God. I mean, as I was studying the content of this Sunday school lesson and and, and moving us in this direction, I thought, boy, whew, this is a risky endeavor for me <laughs> because I have to be the one that goes, you know, that, that that basically analyzes and filters all this information. And it's just, you know, piece by and talk about conviction. Um, it's very convicting. But, you know, the reality is, is that this is how you grow as a Christian. Um, and I'll get to that in a second, um, maybe. Uh, but just a couple other verses, okay? Let me just give you some verses here. Uh, just if you want to jot these down. Titus chapter 2, verses uh, 11 to 15. Just on holiness, okay? We're talking about being holy. Okay, Titus chapter... And then Hebrews. Hebrews. You guys know that book, don't you? <laughs> You're like, you won't let us forget it. <laughs> and also 12... 28, another good verse on holiness. And also 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 14 through 19, uh, just more passages on holiness. Uh, turn to Titus chapter 2. Let's look at the Titus 2 one. Titus chapter 2, let's go there uh, just to see uh, that this is not, that this is not just theologians seeking to bring together some sort of system of thought called practical theology. Uh, but this, this is what God is doing. This is what God wants to do in our lives. Beginning of verse 11, look at what Titus 2 says. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I tell you what, you do a point-by-point study of that verse right there, understand what he's saying in terms of the denial of ungodliness and worldly desires, and then the positive affirmation of living sensibly, righteously, 
and godly. And then notice that notice the realism here, guys, in the present age. Remember Stephen Yule's, uh, if some of you all remember Stephen Yule's uh, session from TEC, how that we're living in between the ages, right? We are we are living in the overlap of the ages, this age and the age to come, sort of overlapping in Christ. And we're kind of stuck in the middle right now, right? We have some of the foretaste of the powers of the age to come, Hebrews says. We've tasted of these powers that are going to be coming in the kingdom. We have the foretaste taste of it, but we are still in this present evil age where we are going to be for all of our pilgrimage, for all of our journey long, we are going to be challenged. We're going to have obstacles. We're going to be besetted by trials and temptation, indwelling sin, um, and all of that. Uh, so it's it's being, um, being realistic. And I actually have a section in here where, where I talk about what practically practical theology in a sense is and is not now we know it is not the pursuit of sinless perfection i had a guy tell me the spirit is so committed to my sanctification that i expect to be sinless and um i i i i took him to first john chapter one verses eight through ten it says, if you, we say that we have not sinned, we're a liar. Truth is not in us. So that at no point in time ever in the Christian life are we ever allowed to say or to suggest that we have achieved a status of spirituality that we are no longer touched by the remnants of indwelling and remaining sin. It's not possible. I personally believe we sin every day in thought, word, or deed. This is... This is what our life is like in these fallen bodies, right? Um, and, and, and this is what it will be so glorious about glorification, is that God will take us to a state of perfected sanctification. Sanctification reached to perfection. That is what glorification is, right? Well, will we fully, what does 1 John chapter 3, I think it's uh, verse 3 says, you know, what does it say there? It says that uh, we will be like him. We will see him as he is and we will be like him, right? We will be looking at the image of God and guess what? We will be reflecting perfectly that image back and forth because we will no longer be hindered by sin. That's what glorification will be. It's almost impossible to think about, right? Life without sin, not one mischievous thought, not one deviant, disobedient thought. No, not one. Not one. Um, think about how glorious that will be. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself uh, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Now watch this now. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort, reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Honestly, why did I add verse 15? This is an injunction from Paul to Titus. Why did I put that in there? Because pastors are naturally cowards. Let me say that again. Pastors are naturally cowards and if he leaves lets us off the hook we will be tempted not to talk about the things we need to talk about 
Because we don't want to offend. Because we want people to like us. Because we don't want nobody to leave the church. Because we want our church to succeed. So we naturally cower away from talking about things that may rub people the wrong way and step on their toes because you're actually now touching upon how they actually live their day-to-day lives. And so, Paul has to say, maybe I'll do a book on it. Pastors are naturally cowards. Maybe I'll do a book on that. So I think of another verse. There's another verse where Paul, this, th- think about how astounding this verse is. I think it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I think it's like in verse 9. Somebody check me on that. But where Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Huh? That's a pastor. He's got to tell him not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Yes, that's right. Remember Peter? Standing next to a little servant girl? I don't know him. It's far worse than that, right? I mean, he actually cursed and everything else. So we, we need the courage. I need the courage to be able to talk about these things and exhort, as he says, these things speak. So first, get them out of your mouth. <laughs> be willing to say them. And then exhort, actually admonish people to do it. And then reprove, if need be, which is a rebuke, a correction. Watch this. With all authority. In other words, if you know you have the backing of Scripture, right, then you should not, um, you should not hesitate, uh, to bring correction where correction is needed. Any questions? Comments? Anything? Yes, sir. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because the bride and the bridegroom. Yeah, there there are so many verses um on this holiness, uh the pursuit of holiness, all these things. Um but there's another dynamic here at work. It's not just what does the Bible say about holiness? There's another thing here and that is what does the Bible say about growth? Right? Growth. Um for example, let me read, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, and I want to read to you just a few verses, like John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, what does that mean? Well, John 15 verses 1 through 8 goes on to talk about that. As you turn, 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm just saying, when Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, that is so definitive, right? So definitive. Um that that is that is exhaustive uh that 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 is uh comprehensive um, yeah. there's no greater testament to our love for Christ than obedience you think about that right and then in John chapter 15 what he calls us to as an expression of that is a fruitful life and 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 before i get to peter let me just read this verse my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And then listen to this. And so you prove to be my disciples. So 
it's not that by doing fruit or having fruit you become a disciple, right? That's not what he said. That's not what he just said. What he just said is that you will actually prove if the imperative is there, you will prove that the indicative exists, right? What is versus what ought to be, right? What ought to be is that you bear much fruit. What does it reveal? That you are his disciples. Now, Second Peter chapter 3, this call to grow uh, is really what the Christian life should be busied with. We should be busying our lives with this. Uh, look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Verse 18, but grow, oh, I love that term, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, What a simple verse, but what a potent verse. We grow in grace and knowledge. The two are not the same. There are many people right now in hell who have PhDs in Greek and Hebrew, theology, philosophy, church history. Um, I mean, I have a giant volume of um, of books that give you the definitions and the origin and the background of every Greek word in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's called uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament by Kittle. Some of the men who did uh, word entries in that giant dictionary, ten volumes. Um, went on to deny the resurrection. Rudolf Boltmann denied the resurrection. He's an, he's an author in that dictionary, and I've learned from Boltmann. I've done word studies that he compiled on the Greek New Testament, and his liberalism led him to the point where he denied all supernatural, all miracles, and finally, including the resurrection. He, he actually went on to say the modern man has no need for the resurrection. So <clears throat> what does that show you? That he wasn't growing in the grace of God in his pursuit of knowledge. He wasn't growing in virtue and Christ-likeness. Had he grown in Christ-likeness, he would have humbled himself under the mind of God and, and submitted himself to the revealed will of God in Scripture. But he did not. Um, uh, how about another one? Hebrews chapter 5. You guys know this one. Hebrews chapter 5. This is where the burden of practical theology comes from. It comes from these admonitions to grow. Being a babe in Christ, being a baby in Christ, is a wonderful thing. It is glorious to behold It is wonderful when we have people in our church that are just new to the faith, and many of you are, and we're just looking upon you with with great joy and expectation, and we're looking at your life, and and we are hoping and we are anticipating that you will grow and that you will flourish. But if we check back five years from today, and we're still wondering, when is she going to grow? When is he going to grow? Something's wrong. We're getting ready to have a baby. Well, technically, she's, I gotta give her all the credit because, 
I'm not going through it. She's going to go through it. And we're going to have this baby. And we hope and pray that this will be a healthy baby girl, that she will grow and become, you know, she will grow in strength and wisdom and stature. But if you come and check back five years from now, and five years from we're still having to change diapers and, you know, do the things that belong to a newborn babe, you're going to be looking at us like, what have you guys been doing with this precious baby, right? Um, yeah, our call is to mature, to grow. Look at verse 11, <clears throat> Hebrews 5.11. Concerning Melchizedek, that's what he's talking about, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So, so just notice the possibility or the potential for stunted growth. He, he's not writing to a group of unbelievers. This is to a church. And there are some in this church, apparently, who have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now stop right there, because I think a lot of Christians read this and they think, so what is this saying? Like, I mean, I gotta be like Pastor Emilio. I gotta be like reading theology books all the time. I gotta go learn Greek and Hebrew and all this. What is, what is that saying? No, no, no. How, how many applications to this word teacher can you think of? I can think of a lot of them. Right? Like what? Teaching your home, teaching your kids, husband and wife, teach one another. Trisha teaches me stuff all the time. She's reading constantly and sharing things with me. And I'm just like amazed at the things that she's reading. And I teach her, hopefully sometimes. But we're teaching one another. Colossians tells us as a church, teach one another, right? Uh, Did I tell you the story about the lady that taught me that one time? She was this hardcore, you know, anti-feminist, you know, just real hardcore. And I appreciate it. Okay, great. And she started telling me about how feminism has ruined the church and blah, 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 blah. How women shouldn't teach in the church and blah, 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 shouldn't be pastor. Okay, I'm, I'm with you. She went on for 45 minutes quoting to me the history of feminism, telling me where it crept in, evangelicalism in the days of Billy Graham. She went over, she quoted all these scriptures and I told her, thank you for teaching me. She goes, oh no. I didn't mean to teach you. I was like, you're not violating the principle in Scripture. (laughs) In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, where women are not allowed to teach or have authority over a man, this is a different context. Um, So there are plenty of applications where we all uh, can teach uh, one another. Um, But notice the expectation it says, some, you should have been teachers by now. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Then he goes on to talk about what, the, what that, what that goes on to say in chapter six, but he, basically it's this, is you never got off the ABCs of Christianity. You never moved on to maturity. You're still stuck, right? On trying to just grasp the most basic doctrine in the bible um and we got to be patient folks and we got to be kind and we need to be gentle and especially as the apostle paul told the thessalonians we prove to be gentle among you like a nursing mother yes yes gentle yes yes patient yes yes kind but not so patient not so kind not so gracious that you're more patient more kind than god 
Because God is the one that says, you should come to a point where you ought to be a teacher by now. You've been in Christianity so long. Something is amiss. You're still stuck on the ABCs. You're still on the milk. You should be on solid food by now. Now, do you feel the burden to grow now? And this is, I mean, like I said, we can go on and on. Look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. And there comes a point where we can no longer be infants. But solid food is for the mature. Latch on to that word, brothers and sisters, mature. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What is a mature Christian? A mature Christian is someone that has been so trained by the word of God that they are able to look with wisdom at a situation and understand the discerning, the dividing line between good and evil and they can, they know when it's time to split the baby. Like Solomon. They know when it's time to make this choice or that choice based on the word of God. And they can give you reasons for it and they can tell you why they're doing it. And um, that's what practical theology is all about. Um, nope, I'm out of time. <laughs>